I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and my Ask Annalisa column appears in The Guardian every Saturday. Each week, I'm lucky enough to speak to some amazingly insightful, top-of-their-field specialists, and this podcast gives me the opportunity to speak to them in much more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this project, and I'd love to continue to do more, so if you'd like to support us and also listen to this podcast series free of ads, do join us over on Patreon, where you can also get the podcasts before they go on general release go to patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri. Otherwise, you can leave a one-off donation on ACAST Supporter. You can find the link for that in the description of this episode. Or just please listen and share as much as you can. It would also mean a lot to us if you left a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This week's episode is about the impact of child sexual abuse. It's not an easy listen, but I think a necessary one. It's a subject that's also very close to my heart, for reasons we'll find out in a moment. I speak to consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy, Dr Joe Stubley, who leads the adult section of the trauma service at the NHS Tavistock Centre. Joe is a member of the British Psychoanalytic Society and also took part in our trauma episode in Series 1, which would be good to listen to after this if you haven't already. This is an episode of three parts. In the first, I talk to Joe about non-recent child sexual abuse, how to look out for it, what to do if your child tries to talk to you about it, and much more. I'll then tell you the story of my childhood friend who was abused by her uncle and what happened to her. She's one of the reasons that I care so much about the child sexual abuse problems that come into me at The Guardian. I couldn't help her back then, but I try to do what I can now to help other survivors. We're calling her Hannah, but that isn't her real name, and she's given full permission for her story to be told for the first time. We then go back to Joe, who explains that how Hannah feels is sadly typical of child sexual abuse survivors. I think this is such an important subject because, as Joe explains, the statistics for child sexual abuse are astonishingly high. At the end of this podcast, I'll mention organisations that can help if you're affected by this subject, and I'll put links to them in the episode description.
Joe, hello and welcome to another episode. It's really good to have you back on. This is a really difficult subject, but I think one that was really important to talk about. Now, in my experience of hearing people's stories, they write to me when they're adults and they talk about historic child abuse. Is that typical in your experience? It is. And first of all, thank you so much for having me back. It's lovely to be here. And I think one thing I want to start by saying immediately is let's think really carefully about language. Because when we're talking about trauma, we need to really focus on what the language might mean. And you just used the word historic. And although in many ways that's right, that you know, if, if someone is an adult and they're talking about what happened to them as a child, it might feel like it's historical. Actually, a lot of the work that's been going on recently with survivors has been to say it might be much better to call it non-recent child sexual abuse. And that's partly because we're acknowledging that it may have happened a long time ago, but it's still having a powerful influence potentially now. So to pick up your point, non-recent abuse is often the way that people will first begin to talk about what has happened potentially a long time ago. And that's partly because it is such a difficult subject to put into words. You know, there's a, a quote that I really like, which says, the ordinary response to atrocities is to banish them from consciousness. And I think people do that as individuals for a whole variety of reasons that I hope we can talk more about. But I think that as a society, we also do that. We don't want to think about such awful things being done, particularly to children. I think sometimes people have a lot of problems with understanding why the survivor didn't say something at the time. And I think you're absolutely right. And thank you for telling me about that. It's a much better way to say it. Because I think historic also means like you should put it behind you. Now, generally speaking, the letters I get and the cases I come across, as I said, are adults. There's a common thread that I see, and I'm not saying it's the case in all cases, but it seems that they've reached a safe place where they can talk about it. But I think in a way, the way we do talk about it it's almost like we expect children to be able to say what's going on. And they don't always have the language at the time, do they? They often don't have the language. They also have often had to use defences, unconscious, automatic defences, in order to survive what has happened to them. So one of the commonest defences when something so unbearable occurs is to dissociate and what I mean by that is that the mind leaves what is happening. You know, we talk about dissociation as the escape when there's no escape. When something unbearable is happening to us, our first sort of bodily response is to enter into what many people will know about of the fight-flight response. But if you can't do either of those things, and you often can't when you are in this particular situation, then the next automatic response is to freeze. The body starts, first of all, rigid and then goes floppy and everything slows down. And 
as a part of that, it's so unbearable that the mind leaves, it detaches from the experience. So many people might talk about, I wasn't really feeling like this was happening to me. I was watching it from the ceiling or I was watching it from the end of the bed. Or at its most extreme, I don't remember what happened. So they detach from what's happening and then the experience itself gets compartmentalized in the mind. It's like it gets put into a separate box or room in the mind and the door gets closed. So sometimes people don't even remember that it's occurred and that it's only later. And I think what you said about feeling safe enough is one thing, but sometimes it's also that it gets triggered to come back into the mind again. The other tricky thing just to add about dissociation is that although it sort of gets put away, it can also flood back into the mind at certain times in terms of images or sensations, intrusive sort of experiences or sometimes nightmares that might be fragments and don't make sense. So there's both a kind of not knowing what's happened but also a sort of constantly having it being relived or coming back to you. And all of those things can make it really difficult to put it into words, to have any kind of narrative or story for what has happened. And it can take time and sometimes a long time before it's possible to be able to find the words to begin to say something has happened and to open that box up. And sometimes what I've also heard is where people maybe say teenager and they have said something, they haven't been believed and they're already in a situation where they're doubting themselves and then to have someone not believe them can be really catastrophic. You said that sometimes the door can open. What might make that happen? What might be happening to a person that suddenly they remember things or are triggered? Okay, so I think there's two parts to what you've just said. And the first bit that I want to pick up is when we think about child sexual abuse, it is a process. And the process involves three aspects. First of all, there is the grooming that often occurs, and we can talk more about that. Then there's the event or the events themselves. And then the third bit, which is linked to what you're saying, is what happens with disclosure. So the disclosure, the ability to be able to talk to someone about it and what their response is, is also a part of this overall process of the child sexual abuse. So when the box gets partly or fully opened, it might be for a number of different reasons. One thing that's very common is when people have to have medical or dental examinations. So if you think about this in terms of what they are experiencing, that there is someone in a position of kind of authority or you know, someone who is in a position of trust who is then doing something to their bodies and that they can feel quite helpless. I mean, think particularly about what it can be like for any of us to lie in a dentist's chair that can be triggering in itself. And of course, for many people, for women, what can happen is it can be around childbirth. That extreme vulnerability and helplessness, the need to 
trust this person in authority who's again kind of working on your body and in a very particular part of your body can be really triggering but there can also be more ordinary experiences later sexual encounters you know particularly for teenagers this can be a moment in which the box starts to be opened up and it often opens up in sort of fragments and in ways in which that it doesn't feel as though it's kind of making sense it might just be bodily experiences it might be extreme emotions it might be little bits of images or something that they can't quite make sense of first of all because that must be terrifying if you're having these sensations but you haven't linked them so how can you begin to put the pieces together i think you've picked up something really important it is often terrifying and i think that what people often do is try really hard to put it back into the box and there are many ways in which they try and do that that you know they try to find sort of different actions and ways of managing themselves to cut off these feelings and to get rid of these experiences sometimes that includes things like taking alcohol or drugs to try and numb themselves again or engaging in risky activities or finding ways to sort of switch off and i think that's one of the difficulties that it leaves people really struggling with something that feels overwhelming and frightening and unbearable and i think one thing that you touched on earlier that's really important is that in order to be able to give meaning and to make sense of what's happened people need to feel safe enough with another person to be able to do so so finding a safe trustworthy space i think is often the beginning of being able to make sense of what's happened i'd like to go back to that but for now can we start with the grooming process and what happens there i mean i suppose one of the things that i want to really also kind of open up is just to say that i think we need to be clear that when we're talking about child sexual abuse it is a potentially whole variety of things that can happen and it may be occurring in the context of other kinds of abuse so physical and emotional abuse neglect are also common alongside it and can be quite difficult to kind of tease out and recognize that those different things can be there it is inappropriate sexual activity between a child and another individual who is in a relationship of power trust or responsibility and the power issue i think is particularly important and this is part of what links in with the grooming that you're saying sexual abuse can be contact or non-contact so things like sexual harassment exhibitionism voyeurism pornography all of those things still come under this general heading of sexual abuse and nowadays you know what many of us would also think about the reality that it may also be online facilitated abuse so there's all of that part of of the different kinds of abuse that can occur that are non-contact and then there's contact which may be kissing fondling touching or it may be penetration which could be oral anal 
or vaginal. We also have to recognise that there are other kind of subheadings of things like child sexual exploitation, child prostitution and trafficking, ritual abuse, forced marriage for underage girls in particular, and that there can be peer-on-peer -peer abuse. And I know I'm kind of expanding on the question that you asked me, but I, I felt I wanted to really make sure that we were inclusive in what we were talking about here, because if we take that as our basis and then move to the question of grooming, it does partly kind of link in with what kind of abuse might be occurring. Grooming is a really complicated and difficult process to understand. It can go on for years. What essentially is happening is that the perpetrator wants to isolate the child from sources of support and to keep them silent and to oppress them so that this is someone who will do what is asked of them and will not tell anyone else. And if the abuser is a family member or someone close to the family, then the grooming is not just in relation to the child, but is also in relation to other adults who may otherwise become curious or concerned about what's going on. The perpetrators will spend a lot of time getting the other adults to turn a blind eye to what's going on, discrediting anything the child says, you know. Oh, she's a liar. She's always making a fuss about things. She makes things up all the time. She's just difficult. I'll look after her. Don't you worry about her. So it becomes something that means that people don't see what might be going on right in front of their eyes. And the child ends up silenced, ends up feeling often complicit in what's happened, that somehow they're to blame, that they can't tell anyone because it will be seen as their fault. So it's a very complicated system. And I think probably one of the most awful things is that it creates this terrible confusion in the child's mind of what's right and wrong, what love is, because there is often a, a wish for the child to be getting affection and more ordinary kind of approaches, and this instead becomes something that is aggressive and inappropriate. So this confusion ends up also being you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's love, what's hate, what's truth, what's lies, and they take all of that inside of themselves. And it perpetuates the secrecy and the silence and the shame. Yes, I mean, I've heard that time and time again, and it can be very difficult to explain to people that they were groomed, because as you said, it's very complex. And often the grooming of the family, so the family just can't believe it. They just think, well, no, you know, that's, that's your favourite uncle or whatever. What questions might a family ask them if they have suspicions about someone? They might think that another person, a relative, teacher, priest, might be grooming their child. Are there things to look out for? So I think that there are all kinds of warning signs whilst it is happening. And probably one of the most common is that there is a change in behaviour. 
It might be a change in which the child becomes more withdrawn and pulls away from the family. Or it might be, depending on the age and the developmental context, that the child becomes, in what we might sort of think of in simplistic terms, sort of more vulnerable to acting out behaviour. They start behaving really badly. Sometimes it's that they regress to earlier developmental stages so that they might start wetting the bed again or they might start becoming more scared at night, having nightmares, all of those sort of potential sort of signs that are saying there's something wrong here. And I think that the the difficulty around the grooming is that there's often an explanation that the perpetrator can give to say this is why it's occurring, they're just causing trouble. And one of the difficulties for family and friends is often to be able to find a way to keep in mind or even to bring to mind that something terrible might be going on. We all want and I think have a natural propensity to want to deny or disavow the reality of terrible things happening, particularly if they're terrible things that are being done by someone we know and trust. So having the thought that something bad might be happening here is often the most difficult thing. Looking then at what's going on with the child and creating a potential space to be able to talk about it in a non-judgmental way, to be able to ask, is something happening that you're not happy with? Is there anything going on that you think it would be helpful to tell me? And I think that also can be extremely difficult to do, just to be open to the possibility that you might end up hearing things that at least one large part of you doesn't want to know about. Yeah, I can imagine how difficult that is if it's someone that, you know, you trust as a member of your family. And what I say to people is because we tend to see child abusers, murderers in the paper on a mugshot, and mugshots always look very particular. And especially, I think, with child abusers, you know, their whole modus operandi is to groom. And so they infiltrate. They can be extremely charming. And they don't look like a mugshot. They look just like the person next door and that's a real leap really because like you said you know I mean we don't want to believe that that person is within our midst when you're talking about changes in a child's behavior are they sort of significant are they noticeable are they sustained there can be I mean I think that one of the things that we also have to acknowledge is that there is a a wide variety of responses and it will depend very much on the age of the child, the uh, degree and chronicity of what's occurring, and I think as we've been touching on in particular, the relationship between the child and the abuser. And it does inevitably become much more complicated if it's someone who is either a part of the family or is closely involved with the family or even, you know, is sort of part of an institution and, you know, someone in the school is a very common possibility. And thinking about what you were saying about the kind of mugshots and the photos in the paper, I think that there is a wish for us to believe that this mostly is 
around strangers, but actually the most common relationship in terms of sexual abuse is someone the child knows, often someone that the family knows and knows well. And that's part of the infiltration of the, the sort of the person into the child's life. But, you know, commonly it can be a father, a stepfather, uh, uh, some other kind of carer or guardian. It is also possible, and this is something that can be extremely difficult to talk about, that it can be a mother who sexually abuses. And for me, that also links in with us having to kind of recognise that we can have a particular stereotype in our own minds. So an idea that it's the stranger and that it's always a girl who's abused is something that I think we can get caught up in. But actually, if one looks at the figures, there's something like one in five girls give a history or, you know, have had an experience of child sexual abuse. But we think it's probably something like one in 12 boys. So boys also get sexually abused. And sometimes the sexual abuser can be a female. Now, you'll notice that I said these sort of possible figures. It's very difficult to be certain about how common child sexual abuse is for all of the obvious reasons, one of which you've already highlighted that people may not disclose until many years later. There's also a lot of problems with the research and the definitions of child sexual abuse and the populations that are studied. So it is hard to be sure of how many people have these experiences. But one recent government paper suggested that 7.5% of adults have the experience of child sexual abuse uh, before the age of 16. And just to really drum that in, that is something like 3.1 million people in England and Wales. God, that's astonishing. Disturbing, isn't it, to think mm. that many. Okay, give me a minute. I'm just mm. digesting that figure. Um, but let's look at what you just did there, Annalisa, because I think it's really important. You said, let me just digest that figure. It is such a hard thing to digest that in our society, this is happening with such frequency. And historically, we see this too. It is so difficult when one looks back to see that there are sort of waves and cycles in which there's some acknowledgement of the reality of child sexual abuse in society, and then a denial and disavowal occurs again. So just as an example, there was a really well-known psychiatric textbook in 1980 suggested that incest occurred in one in a million families. And that's such a, a disavowal of the reality of what I'm saying, that it occurs one in five girls, one in, twi one in 12 boys. We have this repeated pattern of we try to see it and then we need to turn away from it because we can't bear it. Because digesting it means taking in that such terrible things happen. Do we have any idea why it's so prolific? Hmm, I mean, that's such an interesting question. 
I think that one of the things that we have to really hold on to is that child sexual abuse is not about sex. It is about oppression and power and aggression and the misuse of power in this way. It is about a wholesale giving to a vulnerable other of experiences of unbearable helplessness, shame, humiliation, huge levels of anxiety. And I think for me there's something in that about a recognition that there are adults out there who have terrible experiences or senses of themselves that they end up enacting with others rather than being able to think about their own difficulties. And I think that's one of one of the awful things of thinking about this, that what must be in the minds of a perpetrator to inflict such damage on a helpless and vulnerable child. Yes, because as adults we have to take responsibility for our behaviour. But I've often wondered something which is very difficult to think about, which is if someone has themselves been abused, it doesn't of course mean that they will go on to abuse. But if someone has been abused as a child, we have sympathy for them. But of course, when they grow up and they then they themselves go on to abuse, that sympathy, quite understandably and rightly, evaporates and turns to disgust and hatred and anger. Is it always a given that people who abuse, in your experience, have been abused? No, and I think it's also important to say, you know, I work with survivors of child sexual abuse. I'm not an expert in relation to perpetrators. And I think that's something that maybe is a difficult split that I look at the people who have had these terrible things happen to them and then other clinicians will work with the people who have done terrible things. But what you've highlighted is that the perpetrators will often have terrible histories of their own And that is not in any way to justify what they've done or to take responsibility away from them. But I think as a society, we have to recognise that to inflict this kind of damage on others may well be partly in response to damage that has been done to them. When people come to you as adults and they have non-recent child sexual abuse, Is there a common theme to what they say? There are a lot of common themes. I think that the first thing to say is that when I first started working as a therapist, it was very rare for people to come and say, I want help because I've been sexually abused. And that might partly be because of what we were talking about before, that they didn't have a clear recollection of it. But some people do. Some people can remember clearly what's happened. But I think that it was more about what was going on in society, that people often struggled to be able to say, this is what's happened to me. Now, in the last 10 years or so, I think that's changed. And one big change is the terrible things that we started having spoken about in the media 
So Jimmy Savile made a huge impact. What happened and what was reported and the subsequent police investigations and, of course, other celebrities that were also named in these things, those things occurring, what happened around the Me Too movement and also the recognition of child sexual exploitation, all of these things have made an impact in terms of people being able to come and say, I want help because I was sexually abused as a child. So I think there's been a, a big change and it's a really positive one in my experience. I also think that when people do come, the themes that will often emerge are around the shame, the guilt, self-blame, the silence and the secrecy that they had to take part in. You can see that we're talking about it has a potentially profound effect on someone's self-perception, how they feel about themselves, that something happens in the nature of the experience, and remember we're talking about the grooming, the events and the potential disclosures, that can often leave the child and then the adult feeling that what happened says something terrible about who they are as a person. And those things are very common when people come to us. I think the other thing that's very common is that you see ways in which people have tried to manage these experiences. They find ways to try and shut down the fight-flight response. So again, might be drugs and alcohol might be things like eating disorders, so that eating disorders can be a very common part of the presentation. It may be that they use overworking or shutting down in order to manage the hyperarousal, so having very few contacts with other people. Or if they're having repeated going into that freeze and dissociative response, one of the ways that they might manage is by risky behaviours that get the adrenaline going. And this is linked to a, an increase in what we call re-victimisation. There's a lot of evidence that demonstrates that for many people who have had child sexual abuse, that the potential to experience further abusive experiences as adults is is really high so some studies suggest that between 2 to 11 times more likely to experience adult sexual assaults if you've had child sexual abuse 46% of people in one study who had had child sexual abuse uh, went on to be survivors of interpersonal domestic violence as adults and why is that well, I think it's a really interesting and complicated question to answer. And I guess as a psychoanalyst, I want to bring in a notion that Freud used, which for me really helps to understand something of this. He talked about this idea that we all have of the potential for repetition, what he called the repetition compulsion. And what he said was, when we can't remember something, we're destined to repeat it, and it will often be through our actions that we repeat it. 
without necessarily being aware of it. Now, I think this is a really important idea because remembering is not just about having a recollection of the experience. It's also having the language to be able to put it into a narrative, to tell another and to allow oneself to have the associated feelings when you're doing that. And there are a lot of good reasons, including that dissociative defense that we were talking about earlier, that make it really hard for people to remember in this way. So instead, they repeat it unconsciously. They act it out, particularly in terms of relationships. And the repetition is in different ways picking up the different roles in the trauma scenario. So victim, perpetrator, bystander, and this is often the bystander who turns a blind eye to what's happened. And then the fourth position is often hoped for but may never occur is the rescuer. And so the repetition happens in terms of a, a sort of dyadic experience there is an invitation to others to come in again unconsciously and take up the reciprocal role. So I think that one of the things that makes it more likely for people to be re-victimized is that they can't remember and so that there is a repetition of the traumatic experience. And when it gets repeated, there is often a way in which it's an attempt to master the situation that was so unbearable and overwhelming last time. And so this is one of the reasons why you might see that for some people who've had child sexual abuse, they go, particularly in adolescence and young adulthood, into very risky sexual practices. They you know, may have multiple partners engaged with strangers, which clearly puts them more at risk and is part potentially of this repetition, but it's also trying to find a way to master something that when it originally occurred, it was so unbearable. So it's almost like they're hoping for a different outcome this time. Exactly. And that's the life force part of it, that it has that hope that this time it can be different. There were also, in cases that I've read, sometimes people go the other way and they avoid people. They certainly can avoid sex. What might be happening there? I think it's a really understandable trauma response. If we think back to what we've talked about before with trauma, when something unbearable happens, part of what you're left with quite often is these repeated hyperarousal, the fight-flight responses that will get activated by anything that sort of reminds you, even unconsciously, of the event. Sometimes it might be a smell or a particular lighting or proximity to another person. But all of those things might trigger both that hyperarousal fight-flight, but also the potential for some of that dissociated material, the images, the sensations, to come back. So, of course, part of what you're going to do is avoid because that's a sensible thing to do. You want to shut it down and stop it from happening again. And understandably, sex, even in a loving, consensual relationship, might cause those sorts of triggers to be set off. And so people shut down 
and they shut down both in terms of what they might do but also their availability emotionally to others as a way of protecting themselves. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The things I've learned is that with emotions, unlike a fuse box where you can isolate certain parts, if you shut one part of you down, you tend to numb down all of it. One of the things I see repeatedly is children as adults, because the children don't write to me, because I think they often don't know what's going on. They don't feel that they could write to somebody in a newspaper. But the common theme is they blame themselves. And I think my experience is that people don't really acknowledge how much, even in everyday non-abusive situations, children blame themselves. But why do they blame themselves? I think you put that really beautifully. And I suppose the first thing to say is that when you're a child, you have an egocentric view of the world. Everything is about you. So, you know, this is part of what you see of kind of magical thinking of children, that if you, you know, step on this crack in the pavement, you're going to cause something bad to happen. Or, you know, if you wish for something strongly enough, it's going to occur. And then when bad things happen, that kind of thinking also applies for children. So, you know, parents get divorced. Children very commonly think it's my fault. It's because I've been bad. So there's that natural propensity anyway in a child to feel this must be about me. 
But then the other bit that I think we have to remember is that often part of the grooming process as well is that the perpetrator will do a number of potential things to make the child feel complicit. So they might say, you know, well, I bought you that lovely toy and you knew that that was part of what was going to happen if I bought you the toy. So you must have wanted this to happen. Or, you know, to kind of pull them into the silence by saying, and this is a really difficult thing to get your head around, but to say that, well, look, you you were excited, your body responded, so you must have wanted this too. And that ignores such an important reality that our bodies respond even if we don't want them to. So a child may well end up being physically aroused by things that are being done to their body, but that does not mean they wanted this to occur. But that sense then of you asked for this, you wanted it, you're complicit in it, is also what gets the silence going. And then the other bit that I think comes in in relation to this self-blame is that there is a psychoanalyst called Fairburn who said that for children who've had these terrible things happen, it's better to live in a world ruled by God and to be bad in that world than to live in a world that's ruled by the devil. And what he was talking about, and I think it particularly applies when it's a caregiver or a close family member or someone like, you know, a teacher or something, someone who matters, it is better to think they're good and what they're doing to me is bad, but it must be because I'm bad. Because then as a child, you have the potential to be able to think, so if I'm if I'm a good enough child, maybe this will stop and maybe this will mean that they'll just love me in an ordinary way again. But if you think my caregiver, the one I turn to for care, love and attention is doing this terrible thing to me, then it is a world ruled by madness and the devil. And that's just too unbearable. So those feelings get taken in of it's my fault for all of these complicated reasons. Which is why then at the point of disclosure, if the caregiver, usually the parents, let's say, says the wrong thing, either on purpose or because they're so shocked, that can totally cause them to shut down. If anyone's listening to this and their child may start their conversation or they may suspect something, I think, what can we say to them? You talked earlier about allowing space for the child to speak, but what is a good thing to say and what would perhaps not be a good thing to say so that a child feels safe to talk? I suppose that there is a reality that in the heat of the moment, it may well be that we say the wrong thing. And I think that it's important to think that even if that does occur, we can go back and try and repair it. So I want to say to those adults who might find themselves in such a terrible situation that there might be that initial, I don't believe it, response. And that's an understandable disavowal of of the reality of awful things happening. 
and the inevitability that guilt is probably going to be stirred up. And then I think it may also be that there is a terrible moment in which one might end up thinking, but what is this going to mean? So if a child is saying to a mother, my stepfather is abusing me, what does that mean for the mother in terms of her security, her financial security, her home, her relationship? So I just wanted to frame your question first of all to say this is never easy for people and it might take time. But there is something about being able to let a child know that whatever has happened, it's not their fault and that whatever has happened, it can be together thought about and a way of working through it found. And there's some really interesting research that's been done that suggests that when it's possible for a child to have an adult who can think about what's happened with the sexual abuse, they are far less likely to go on to have long-term consequences of the abuse because they've got that other person who can think about what's happened. If the adult that they're disclosing to can't think about it, and I've said reasons why that's highly possible, that puts the child more at risk. So there is a work that might need to be done and the adult might need to get help in being able to think about what has happened. Which brings me on to my next question, which is how can you ever begin to process if you've been sexually abused as a child? I think we need to be really straightforward that it's never easy. It takes a lot of courage, but I am often profoundly moved by the amount of courage and bravery that I see in the people that I work with. I think the beginning is an acknowledgement to yourself that something is wrong and then there is something about needing to find what is right for you in terms of the potential for a trustworthy other. And that might be starting with the more traditional going to a GP, going to a counsellor, trying to find a therapeutic space. There are also particular charities that look at this area as a kind of area of their own expertise. There are also some fantastic organisations that offer peer support for people, either individually but most commonly in groups. And, you know, if we think about that, what I was saying earlier about society struggling with recognising the reality of child sexual abuse, one of the things that made it much more possible for us to be having this conversation today was the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s where women's groups started up often quite spontaneously and began to talk together about what had happened to them. And one of the things that kept coming up was that for many, child sexual abuse and also interpersonal domestic violence were common experiences that had not been talked about before. So 
Part of what I'm saying is I think that there is a need for someone to think very carefully about what might work best for them and to explore, to have a look around, to go onto websites, to talk to other people that they trust, to think about how do I find a space for me that's going to work best for me. And we'll mention some organisations that can help at the end of this podcast. I think it is also important to say there's some really good work going on at the moment in NHS England that is looking at how to have a, a better pathway across both voluntary and statutory services so that when people do disclose, they then have those options more clearly available. At the moment, it's a bit patchy and people might have to kind of really investigate to find what's available to them in their area. But what I've been talking about is the need to have that choice is being more fully recognised. I think there's still an awful lot of work that needs to happen within both statutory and maybe less so voluntary services for people to be trained up to facilitate disclosure to then be able to direct people in, in to the right pathway for them. And there needs to be more funding in this area. As someone who works in the NHS, part of my trauma service also has a specific arm for non-recent abuse. We work on a shoestring, and this is true for many people. And I think it's something that needs to be addressed as a part of a broader societal issue. I totally agree and also part of the characteristics of the child abuse is that you feel so isolated so whilst you wouldn't want it to have happened to anyone else finding out that it has I guess can make you feel less alone. If you don't remember if you've been abused but you suspect you might have been how do you know if you might have been? And also I've read quite a bit about forced memory syndrome and given what we've spoken about that sometimes the memories seem unreal how do you know it's a real memory? I think this is a really important area, Annalisa, and I'm really pleased you brought it up. It is complicated, and I think it's important that people have a space, if they need to, to explore this and to be able to find out for themselves through thinking with another and having the time to keep a an open, curious stance about what might have happened, it's usually possible to be able to get some sense of what the reality might have been. I also think we need to go back a little bit historically in order to understand this notion of false memory syndrome because I think it has caused significant problems in relation to thinking about non-recent child sexual abuse. If we go back to the early 1990s, there was already this movement that I was talking about that came out of the feminist movement where more women started to talk about child sexual abuse and some women started to do what you're describing of putting together the kinds of difficulties that they were having and then going to see therapists and saying, I think something happened, but I don't know. Now, there was a particular woman in the States. She was actually a 
professor, Jennifer Freyd, who did precisely that. She went to a therapist with eating disorder symptoms, with depression, anxiety, and saying, I, I don't quite know what's happened. One of the things that the therapy led to was a recognition that in her childhood there'd been a lot of intrusion, control, manipulation and crossing of sexual boundaries by her father. And when Jennifer went and tried to discuss this with her father, he vehemently denied it, as did the mother, and then went on to set up the False Memory Syndrome Foundation with several other people and set this up as an organisation that then supported perpetrators when they were brought to court to say that if a, a woman is alleging sexual abuse by the father, then it is likely to be false memory. And it became this war between what was called recovered memory and false memory. When we look back at it now, a lot of the research that was quoted by the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was really poorly done. There's an example of there was someone who did a what was called a lost in the mall study where they took a number of individuals and got their friends and relatives to suggest to them over a two-week period that as a child they had been lost in a mall. And a number of the research participants then took that on as a memory that was their own. Now this was used to say that therefore unscrupulous or sort of overzealous therapists could implant these false memories of child sexual abuse in a similar way. Now Lost in the Moor research has been widely discredited and has also been recognised as, as not a good way of thinking about a, a potential recovery of childhood sexual abuse memories within therapy. There may well be a very small minority of people who jump too quickly to an answer of I was sexually abused as a child and that's why I have all these symptoms. But in the majority of cases, it is more related to that issue of dissociation that I was talking about earlier. And what we've now seen is that false memory is extremely uncommon and it has been misused as a way of getting perpetrators off in the court system. There's a particular thing that they do that Jennifer uh, Freyd talked about in her book Betrayal Trauma that's called DAVO, which is Deny, Attack and Reverse Victim and Offender. So they go on the attack and say, it's not me who's done something terrible, it's you. Look at this terrible thing that you're doing. So I think what I really want to convey is that it's very unlikely that if someone recovers a memory that it's false, it is much more likely that it's dissociated. It may be in the dissociation that there's still confusion as to who it was or exactly what happened or when or where, but the experience of intrusion and the betrayal of trust is likely to be real.
We're now going to hear a narrative from my childhood friend who we are calling Hannah and her experiences of child sexual abuse. On my very first day of school, I met Hannah. Hannah bounced right up to me and from that day, we've been friends. Hannah was quite different to me in many ways. She was outgoing and chatty, confident, an excellent and fearless swimmer and very cheeky. She'd come out of school like a whirlwind. We never had and have never had a crossword. We've always had an easy relationship based on kindness and fun. As children, we'd have endless playdates and sleepovers and we'd play with our dolls and recreate adverts we'd seen on TV. Her parents, like mine, were foreigners, immigrants, and our mothers became very good friends. But unbeknown to me, Hannah had an abuser, her uncle. He didn't live in England, but every year she and her parents would go back to her parents' country of origin. Hannah remembers the abuse starting on the day of her Holy Communion, when she was about nine or ten, but she's often wondered if it actually started before then, but there are periods of time she can't remember. I too wonder if the abuse started earlier, because I had noticed her behaviour changing well before then. Of course, back then, I had no idea what it was due to, but with hindsight and now understanding a bit more about how sexual abuse survivors can try to externalise some of the things being done to them, I look at her change of behaviour differently. The clues were there if only the adults had been paying attention. I remember Hannah doing things like unscrewing light bulbs and filling them with water so they exploded and covering her bed in bubble bath. She also became really fearless, reckless when swimming. At the time, of course, I thought she was brave and funny, but I remember those details and even in my childhood brain, I must have thought they were odd because they stuck out. Hannah's uncle was her favourite uncle. She trusted him and he made a real fuss of her. She loved him. She only saw him once a year. On the day of her Holy Communion is when she remembers the abuse starting, when he orally raped her. He then gave her a present. He would continue to buy her presents. Her parents and aunt, the uncle's wife, would leave Hannah with him to babysit her. And during those periods, he would sexually abuse her. When we left primary school, we both went to different high schools, but we kept in touch. We were best friends. But not long after, Hannah's family decided to go back to their country of origin. The uncle helped them relocate. He helped them find a place to live. It was almost next door to where he lived. I remember Hannah was really unhappy about this and didn't want to go. I really remember her reticence. She was very upset about going, and I thought it was odd. Of course, I didn't realise that what had been once a year abuse would now happen much more frequently. I didn't hear much from her after she left, and her mother actively distanced herself from mine. I next saw Hannah when we were both in our twenties. I was shocked by how much she'd changed. No longer exuberant and buoyant, the carefree child was gone, although I still see glimmers of her. I want to stress, however, that I see Hannah as a survivor and despite everything that has happened to her, she's gone on to be a successful mother and cares very deeply for others. It upsets me when she describes herself as she does, but I think it's important her story is heard and I'm honoured she trusts me with it. Hannah was failed by almost all the adults around her, but she did not and has not failed. 
This is what she told me happened to her after she left England. These are Hannah's words, which I'm going to read out. I hated my uncle after the abuse started. When I was about 14, I told a female family friend what was happening, and they believed me. This friend said, I don't think this is right. But when I told my mum, she said, but he, the uncle, he's been so good to us. I felt like they were siding with him, putting their needs before mine. When my uncle's wife, my aunt, found out, she said, if anything's happened, it's because Hannah must have asked for it. I felt unvalidated, like it was all my fault. I was frightened of all men by that point, but at the same time was abused by other men as well as my uncle. When I was 13 or 14, I went into hospital to have my appendix out and one of the male nurses raped me. When I told the adults, they didn't believe me. They made me feel like shit, like it didn't matter, because no one believed me. It made me feel worthless, that no one was prepared to do anything. At 14, I started drinking, taking drugs, sniffing dry cleaning fluid. I made multiple suicide attempts, but was put on a ward with adults, even though I was a child. I was sent to a psychiatrist when I was 14, but she was more interested in my love life than what was happening to me. Then I ran away from home. I thought, if I'm old enough to be abused, then I'm old enough to do what I want. I changed, and not in a good way. I put myself in lots of dangerous situations. I hitchhiked around Europe. I met up with an older guy who helped me. He didn't abuse me. I wanted hugs, that's the thing. I didn't have much affection, so when someone did show me affection, I thought, wow. In a way, running away was one of the happiest times of my life. I was running away from my abuser. I didn't have a plan when I ran away. I just wanted to be free. My mum was very hard. When I eventually did go back home, she said, you live by my rules or you can go away again. I had a bath and then left. In the end, I ended up in a bedsit back in England by the time I was 16. Another form of abandonment. But my older sister was in England and she believed me straight away when she heard because this uncle had also tried it with her years earlier. The nicest part for me was when my uncle died. He got throat cancer, which, considering what he'd done to me, I see as karma. I was quite a lot older when I realised it wasn't all my fault. I was so used to hearing it was my fault. But I still talk about it in a very detached way, as though it didn't really happen to me. When I was believed, it was such a huge relief that people actually did believe me. But at the same time, I felt exceptionally damaged and let down. My mum could have said something, but neither of my parents did anything. On her deathbed, my mum said she believed me, that she knew something had happened, but she didn't know how to deal with it. I would have liked for them to believe me and cut contact with my uncle. That's what I would do. No way would I have contact with him. By not being believed, that's what made the trauma worse. I think this is why I've never managed to meet and stay with someone. I'm so damaged that I let the wrong people in. I let people in who are going to hit me or verbally abuse me, almost as if I think that's all I deserve. I slept with lots of people almost to damage myself, but I don't understand why I did those things. I feel that I've been cheated a life that could have been really successful. I feel I'm worthless. Why would anyone want me? I've got nothing to offer anyone.
I still can't stand bald men. My uncle was bald. Joe, I find that story really upsetting. And in fact, the more I go over it, the more upsetting it is because this was someone that I knew throughout childhood and I was living beside her and I had no idea. So I know rationally it has nothing to do with me, but the adult in me wants to go back and protect her. But that's enough about me. Hannah's story is very upsetting and so much of what she says we've spoken about, hasn't she? The the trusted uncle, the way he groomed her, he made a fuss of her, he bought her presents. When she disclosed the inability to believe her, really, because it was just an inconvenient truth. I am the first thing I wanted to say, Annalisa, is actually I'm so sorry, Hannah, that these things happened to you. And I think you're very brave to have let us know your story. And I'm sure that it will help a lot of people to be able to have heard these terrible things that you've gone through. I think one of the things that you convey very powerfully is linked to what we've touched on, that it is the abuse, but it is also what happens subsequently with the disclosure that can be so difficult to think about. And I wanted to touch on that because I thought that part of what you were describing is that perhaps your mum and maybe your dad as well were also groomed by this uncle, that he put himself in a position where it was very difficult for them to extract themselves from his help and support and, you know, his kind of involvement with the family. And that doesn't excuse the terrible feeling you had of being invalidated by the disclosure. She also talks about her risky behaviours, um, the suicide attempts, the further abuse, and I know that she's spoken to me about going on to have domestically violent relationships all of which you've spoken about and what can happen because child abuse has massive long-lasting effects doesn't it it can do and I think that's one of the things that we haven't quite touched on you know it's different for everybody and it may well be that some people have had the experience of child sexual abuse and have been able to process that and work through it and it's not having a terrible impact on their lives now but for many there will be a significant impact on many different aspects of life physical health mental health relationships financial education occupational this you know potential to have an impact on one's sort of spiritual outlook and this vulnerability to re-victimisation. And, you know, there's lots of statistics and figures I could give around this, but I think it's just important to say that it can be absolutely pervasive. And, of course, some of the things that we've talked about that we can use to try and manage the experience, the drugs, alcohol, the um, multiple relationships and so on, they can end up having their own problems as well and they can tie in with the other difficulties. So it is complex, the level of consequences that people can have depends on many different factors but it can be something that affects every single part of their lives.
And Hannah also talks about by not being believed, she feels that she was repeatedly abandoned when she ran away and she went back home and her mum was like, it's my rules or you leave again. So she ended up really on her own from a very, very young age. I mean, having known her all my life, pretty much, I find it very upsetting, but I know it's not unusual when she says that she felt exceptionally damaged and let down. And she talks a lot about her value um, in herself. And I think that's quite common. I mean, what can we say to Hannah and people like her who feel they're worthless? I think the first thing to say is it is such an achievement to have survived and to have found ways to survive. So when I read Hannah's story, I think, you know, what courage it took to run away from home, to leave home and to find a way to manage the best she could, to find help when she could, even though often the help, it sounded like, you know, didn't get it and didn't understand. I felt so upset when I saw that she talked about going to a psychiatrist, but all they were interested in, she says, was her love life, not what was happening to her. But she didn't give up. She kept trying to find a way, and even in her allowing us to know something about what's happened, there is this resilience and survival that one sees shining through. I also think it's important in terms of the self-worth to think about some of what we were talking about earlier, that the abuse can make you feel like it's something awful about you. It causes that terrible shame of I'm bad, there's something wrong with me. But that is the abuse. It's what was done to you, not who you are. And beginning to separate that out and to be able to recognize that when someone you disclose to can't take that in, that is about their difficulty in being able to think about it. It doesn't say anything about your self-worth. Now, all of those words might not sound like much, but there's something about working those through with someone that's really important. And I guess the other bit that I wanted to say that we haven't touched on yet, that I think is such a big thing for me, is to be able to acknowledge that when these things have happened, somewhere deep inside, there is what I would call righteous rage. There is a part of you that can just be so furious that someone has done this, that someone has come into your life and taken away the story that you might have had and given you this other story instead. And I think a part of healing is to be able to feel that it is okay to feel that rage and to talk about it, to know that The rage is something that can actually hold us together and give us purpose. And I think it's part of what people end up often using to help others to engage in altruistic activities after this kind of thing has occurred. So to allow those feelings to be present is really important as well. Well, as Graham Music said in his book, We Spark, anger is a hopeful emotion and not one to be denied, I think. Joe. thank you so much. That was such a difficult conversation, but I think so incredibly necessary. 
As I said, a difficult but essential lesson. Thanks so much to Dr Joanna Stubley for chartering us through those tricky waters. And an especially huge thank you to Hannah for sharing her story and being so brave. I'd like to tell you about some organisations that can help. I will put links in the episode description. NAPAC is the National Association for People Abused in Childhood. It has a helpline and lots of information on its website about how to access support. It's where I refer all my readers who write in to me who have been affected by any form of non-recent child abuse. There's also the NSPCC and Childline for any child experiencing any form of abuse. The Lucy Faithful Foundation is the only UK-wide child protection charity dedicated solely to preventing child sexual abuse. It also runs the Stop It Now confidential helpline. The series is produced by Hester Kent. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Low Cole. Follow us on Instagram at Pocket Annalisa or you can email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean a lot if you could share it with someone you think might like it and also give us a review on iTunes. Please join us again next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.